Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. My name is Lauren Silver, and I'm the Vice President of Education here at the Commonwealth Club, and I am very happy to welcome you all here today. For those of you who don't know the Commonwealth Club or who have never been here before, we are the oldest and the largest nonpartisan public affairs forum in the U.S. We were founded in 1903, which means that 2023 is our 120th anniversary. Ooh. <laughs> Every year, we host hundreds of programs. You probably saw some of the slides with leaders and influencers talking about many different topics, ranging from politics to education, climate to social justice, entertainment, culture, including pop culture, and more. We have lots of options for students and for educators, including low-cost memberships and free tickets to some of our programs. And every June, high school and college graduates can get a one-year membership for free. If you want to learn more about any of this, please visit our website, which is commonwealthclub.org. Creating Citizens is the Commonwealth Club's civics education initiative, building on foundational values of civility, mutual respect, and informed action. Creating Citizens engages young people and adults in meaningful civil dialogue about important contemporary issues so that we can all become active, informed participants in our shared democracy. We are grateful, thank you, applause for that is really good. We are grateful to the Correct Foundation for their generous support of Creating Citizens and for their dedication to improving the quality of civics education in California and beyond. So we're excited to get started, but before we do, please be aware that we are recording this program for video and for audio, so please silence all phones, watches, and any other devices that might make noise that we would otherwise be able to hear on the recording. While you do that, this is our plan for the day. We're going to start with a, start with a conversation between two incredible speakers who I'm going to introduce you to in just a moment. And they're going to be speaking together on stage until about 11. During the last 15 to 20 minutes of the conversation, you're going to have a chance to ask questions. You will have found question cards and pens on your seats, and you can use these during the program to write down your questions. Our moderator will tell you when it's about time for the Q&A, and at that time, you can line up at the mic, which is on that side, and get ready to ask questions. We may not be able to get to all of them. We really like to see the questions that people have for our speakers. So even if you don't get a chance to ask your question today, we would really appreciate it if you would offer to share your question cards with us. There will be somebody who will go around collecting them after the conversation and not a requirement, but we'd really appreciate it. We'd like to see them. After the speaker program, we're going to take a short break. After the break, you'll come back to your seats where you're sitting now. And we'll give you instructions for the next activities, which will take place until about noon, and then we'll have lunch, and we'll wrap up at one. So to get us started, let me introduce you to our speakers. We are extremely fortunate to have California's Secretary of State, Shirley Weber, with us today. Secretary Weber has served in her position since January 2021. She is California's first Black Secretary of State, and only the fifth African-American to serve as a state constitutional officer in California's 170-year history. 
although her family came to California when she was young. Secretary Weber cites her family's experience in the Jim Crow South before they moved as a driving force in her legislative work and her activism. She's fought to secure and expand civil rights for all Californians, including restoring voting rights for individuals who have completed their prison terms. Before her appointment as Secretary of State, Secretary Weber served as a state assembly member and as a member and a chair of the San Diego Unified School District. Secretary Weber is also a professor emerita of Africana Studies at San Diego State University, where she's taught for 40 years. Secretary Weber will be joined by Annalise Finney. Annalise is a reporter and a producer for KQED News, where she covers reparations programs and daily news on the weekends. Prior to her work as a journalist, Annalise worked as a criminal invest defense investigator, representing people on California's death row and people accused of crimes in the Bronx in New York. She was born and raised in the East Bay and holds a BA in Urban Studies from Barnard College. One last note, as you may all know, and I hope you do, today is International Women's Day. What you may not also know is that it is the third day of the first ever National Civic Learning Week, which is a week full of events, gatherings like this one, all meant to highlight the importance of civic education for a strong democracy. We can think of no better way to celebrate both of these important events than by bringing together these amazing speakers and all of you for a day of civil dialogue. So please join me in welcoming Secretary of State Shirley Weber and Annalise Finney to the stage and enjoy the program. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Thank you all for being with us. Um, I'm, yes, it is. Bright. I'm very excited to be here with you all and also with Secretary Weber. Um, Thank you for the invitation to come. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's nice seeing young faces, uh, but uh, it's great to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation. So to get started, I think we're going to start with a kind of basic question. But Secretary Weber, you are one of the most powerful people in California's government. But I'm not sure that everybody knows what the Secretary of State does. So can you break it down for us? Wow. Um, well, the Office of the Secretary of State is one of the eight constitutional offices in California. There are eight of us. Uh, there's a governor at the top, lieutenant governor, and then there's a secretary of state. So that's kind of the order of secession if something were to happen to the governor or whatever. Um, it's an office that has... Uh, we have about 600 employees. Uh, we handle all elections in the state of California. We are responsible for the free and fair elections that happen in California. We implement all the legislation that has to do with elections. So most secretaries of state, particularly in state offices, are known for administering elections. Um, we also have a, we're responsible for all businesses in California. So all of the businesses actually file their documents with the secretary of state. Um, and uh, as well as nonprofits do. So we handle all of those affairs for the businesses in terms of filing. So California has a huge number of businesses, and, and, um, and they all file with the Secretary of State. So you can be able to go to the Secretary of State's website and find any business that's legitimate in California. 
Uh, in addition to those things, we also, which I think is really exciting, we're responsible for the California archives. Uh, it, the archives is one of the oldest offices in, in, in states, his, California's history. So any history in California, all of our bills that have been passed, all of the legislation that has been passed, uh, is all in the California archives. People give us their, the oldest Bible in California that's 400 and some years old, whatever it may be. All of those things are part of California's history. So, that having been said, archives are in our office. So you can also go on archives, our website, and see all of the collections and things that are, are taped and recorded and materials. Really an exciting place if you ever want to find out something about your history or a portion of your city or how it was organized, you go to the California archives. So we have an archive that's really large. We handle also all of the um, uh, things that deal with campaigns. So we have, a, uh, in addition to the elections, we deal with all the campaigns in terms of people filing for office, running for office any conflict that exists between candidates or who filed enough and didn't file enough, Secretary of State's office is involved with that. Uh, we have about 18 lawyers who do nothing but represent us in lawsuits and, and various other cases that uh, which we're forever being sued by somebody because obviously now political uh, elections are very political. So it's a huge operation. It's one of the major operations that interfaces almost with everybody in California. And, um, and so as a result, it is an elected position. It's not an appointed position. So you run for office and you can serve up to eight years as secretary of state. So when you wake up every morning, what is it that keeps you returning to this work or what's the most important part of it to you? Well, you know, I think, um, it took me a while when I was asked, I was appointed as secretary of state before I ran because the person who was secretary of state became my senator. And it took me a while to decide if this was some work that I wanted to do. And I decided it was mainly because of the fact that it dealt with elections. Mm -hmm. And and at the time, that's when all the election stuff was happening in, in California in 2020 when I was nominated by the governor. All the things about is our elections fair? Did somebody steal the election? You know, trying to uh, make the, the count by hand and, and all the audits that took place, as well as the fact that we had basically not re, re, uh, we had not re-upped our um, our Voting Rights Act of 1965. Normally, we would just have that roll over in Congress and it'd be re done again. Uh, we had gotten to a point where people didn't want to deal with voting rights. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 that ensured fairness and, and, and transparency, uh, and we. Had had people questioning our, our, our voting system and the democracy that we have. And I realized at that point, I was in the assembly that, um, you know, you know, they need somebody who's unafraid to do that. And I have a reputation of not being very afraid. OK, the legislation that I've done concerning police force and all those other things and reparations says this is a, probably a woman who's not that afraid. And so the governor knew that we needed someone who would stand up for the right to vote. Uh, and plus the fact that I come out of a sharecropping experience in Arkansas. I hope you understand that. If you don't, I can always answer and tell you what it is. But my parents were uh, victims of tremendous discrimination. My grandparents never got a chance to vote in the United States. They died before the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Even though they had the right to vote, they were intimidated so that no one would ever register to vote. And so my, my grandparents never voted in this country. And my father and mother only got a chance to vote when they were in their late 30s. So I, I come out of a tradition and understanding of how powerful it is to vote. And my parents and, and grandparents were denied the right to vote. So I thought, what a unique opportunity for the daughter of a sharecropper who fought for issues throughout the South uh, to be in a position to basically ensure that 40 million Californians had the right to vote. Mm -hmm. 
So I wonder, everybody kind of comes into their understanding of voting at a different time in their life. And you just described a little bit of your family history with voting. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can describe some of your earliest memories of voting. You know, because... um, because my, my parents came from Hope, Arkansas, they were sharecroppers and all that whole discriminatory practice. They were very um, adamant about voting. So as a child, I grew up knowing that voting was very important. And it became so important that at one point, my house, our home in Los Angeles was a voting place. My living room, the living room in our house was the polling place for the neighborhood because there wasn't a, a, a center nearby, and there wasn't a library nearby in South Central L.A. And my mother had kind of volunteered and worked on the polls during every election because she really wanted to make sure people voted, that when they didn't have a place to vote, she volunteered our home. So you can imagine as a kid that, you know, you're in, in, still in, you're in middle school when my mother did this, that, you know, your dad is taking all the furniture out the living room, and he and my brother are putting up these, these polling places in our living room, and I'm being told that, you know, tomorrow's election day, so come down the driveway and come in the back of the house. Do not come through the front living room where people are taking care of the business of voting. So I grew up with this image that this is so important, it just completely interrupted all of our lives. And we learned very early, all of my sisters and brothers, and there are eight of us, that you register to vote and you vote in every election, no matter how large or how small. And so, and we still have that tradition in our family. So I grew up with this image of voting and my parents telling me that voting was very important. They told me two things was important. One, go to school, get a great education because they were denied. My dad was denied an opportunity to go to school. So as a result, he said, you need to get an education so that you can improve yourself and defend yourself. But he also said you need to vote because even if you get wealth, because he saw this every day in Arkansas, somebody can create a law, create a rule and take all your property, take everything away and you have no rights at all. So he felt very strongly about education and voting. Those are the two things that he drilled into us every day, not to get rich, not to do those things, but to get a good education and to vote. And that speaks a little bit to your career before politics. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what you did before you joined local government and then state government and why you did that. You know, I um, uh, because my father was so adamant about us going to school and there were eight of us and all of my sisters and brothers you know, at that time, and, and many of them in the 50s and the 60s didn't, you know, people didn't graduate from high school. Some of them did, but a lot of them didn't. They dropped out and did various things. They could get employed. Uh, all of us, my dad was very adamant about we all had to go to college. I mean, I had not to go to college. We all had to go to high school and we all had to graduate. And uh, my father worked a kind of a job that didn't give you time off. You know, like you could say, well, my kid's graduating. I want to take a couple of hours off. No, you had to lose pay. So my dad lost a half-day pay for every graduation of his eight kids. And that was the only time he ever took off. He wasn't sick or anything else, and he worked 30-some-odd years in this factory. But he took off for every graduation because it was that important. So education was kind of ingrained in me, and I, and I knew from day one, somehow or another, that I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, and so I, you know, I, uh, uh, I thought I was going to be um, a, a kindergarten teacher. And I was adamant about that. And so I went to UCLA, and... Um, Became actually became a university professor as a result of one of my mentors who nominated me to be a Woodrow Wilson Fellow. And Woodrow Wilson Fellows are people who become university professors. And so I, I got that fellowship and uh, I ended up getting my bachelor's and my master's and my Ph.D. by the time I was 26. And uh, but I became a professor at San Diego State at 23. And they were in the process of developing Africana studies and Chicano studies and Native American studies and eventually did women's studies. And I became a part of that legacy of developing black studies at San Diego State University. Uh, 
I had strong faculty members, strong support, and I fought some tremendous battles for ethnic studies. And I spent 40 years as a university professor. I was also on the school board in San Diego, uh, but I and was politically involved in things. But I was adamant about my work at San Diego State University and the fact that every student needs to be engaged with some level of ethnic studies. And so I became a, a professor, full professor at, UC, at San Diego State and became one of the founders of the Africana Studies Department and served there for 40 years. So I really believe in education. My dad drilled that in me. And once that became my, my, who I was, I, I just knew from day one I was going to be a teacher. Uh, I love teaching. I love working with people who want to learn. And I love seeing the light turn on in people's head, no matter how old or how young they are, when they come across new information and, they, and it changes their view of the world or helps them to understand who they are. That's an exciting experience for me. Very exciting. There's nothing more exciting than watching a person learn and see the light turn on for them. Hmm. So then how did you get started in politics? Because you had this whole career. You did 40 years in education. What brought you into the political world? Well, you know, I think what, what got me into the political world was I was developing Africana studies. And that's a very political thing. You read about it here in San Francisco. The first black studies department was at San Francisco State and the protest and all those things that place. Well, that's a, when you decide you're going to develop a whole new discipline that the, that the university doesn't recognize or doesn't want to recognize, you are involved in a political battle. It's nice to be academic, but you're involved in a political battle, which meant that I had to basically engage in our, our larger community, make sure they understood so that when we went to uh, the Senate or anything like that, that we were basically organized and ready to basically demand the right of, of students to have this, uh, this curriculum. So you become very political. You become become very political because everybody in the city now knows you because you're at the university and you're fighting for this and you have to engage the community because the university folks have already made up their mind what what academic is and they're not likely to change it without some pressure and so we had to then I had to be very politically involved very politically engaged challenging the system challenging the public school system because we had students coming in to the university who knew nothing about ethnic studies so I had to so I became very politically engaged didn't see it as being polit political, but I was fighting things at the school that weren't ad adequately educating kids of color. And eventually, when my friend who was on the school board decided not to run again, I got a call from community people saying, you got to run for school board. And I'm thinking, I got a job. You know, I don't, I don't need to run for school board. And I didn't want to do it. I, I just felt I had other things to do. But it was interesting. They began to remind me, be careful what you tell people. They began to remind me of the things I told them, that everybody's got to step up, everybody's got to serve, everybody's got to do this, do that, so forth, and so on to make a change. And they had decided that I was going to run. And I said, well, find somebody else. And, I, and they didn't. Months later, they called me and said, are you ready to go? Uh, I didn't say I was running. Well, we decided you're going to run. We've already had this meeting and we're doing this fundraising. And, and so I ended up getting just being back into the politics. And I said, well, I'm going to do this for eight years, but I got to go back to the university because there are things I want to finish at the university. So I never stopped teaching at the university, but I was on the school board and, and we did a lot of good things in terms of opening up opportunities for kids to every kid to basically be uh, engaged with valedictorians. We had magnet programs. We had, uh, we started having Tagala as a language. I was part of the movement to make Tagala one of the languages that folks could take to get into college because we had a large Filipino population. Um, we did a lot of different things because we were getting a lot of uh, immigrants coming in from Vietnam and all around. And so we basically had various kind of welcome um, 
programs for kids who are coming to have to orient them toward being in, in San Diego, being in the U.S. And so um, so we did a lot of things. And uh, but in eight years, like I told him I'm going back to the university because I got things to do. And uh, but that's got me politically involved. And then once you get politically involved and people know that you're politically involved and that you can get things done, they never leave you alone. You know, so I went back to the university. And despite all the things I did when I left, when I finally retired after 40 years, um, and I, they talked me into staying to run the program, but I, I had basically retired. Uh, it was at that point that Tony Atkins, a friend of mine, called me and said, we need you to run for the state assembly. And I'm like, I'm supposed to be building a house up in, in West Africa, in Joshi. So how does this match up with what my goals are? And I felt bad because I knew that uh, so much had happened to the universities. And I was chair of a department, and I saw the legislature kind of chipping away at the university and charging students more money than they should have, trying to somehow or another reduce the quality of programming for young people and those kinds of things. And so as a result, I, I, I felt guilty. I said, I got, okay, I got to go. I, I'll do the legislature. I said for six years, I'm going to do it um, because I know what needs to happen at the university for young people, and I want to fight that. I didn't know that when I said I would run that the state was changing the laws from six years to 12, Okay. <laughs> So, <laughs> so after I got there thinking I had six years that I was going to go to Joshi and build this house up in the mountains, all of a sudden I'm faced 12 years, you know, can I do 12 years? And I thought, whoa, you know, but, um, but it was a good 12 years. We did a lot of things for the university. I made it impossible for them to raise fees on students without student consent. Um, we uh, got ethnic studies passed for every campus that's there. Uh, and we, so we dealt with a lot of issues of underachievement with kids. And so we did all that as well as a lot of the other stuff that dealt with police force, reparations, uh, you know, unlawful stops of individuals. I was just telling them I wrote a number of bills for to help folks who had been incarcerated uh, unfairly, who had been found to be innocent, to get resources when they get out. You would think there'd be something for them, but there wasn't. There wasn't uh, not a penny, no, no money given to them after being 25 years in prison. And, and, you, and you're found to be innocent. And there is no compensation. You have to go to court and sue, and it takes forever. So I did all those things, and I was really happy about that in the reparations bill and things like that. So I figured, well, I, was at, I had already done close to eight years. I was, I was, I was done eight years, and I figured I had four more to go, and I lived with my commitment. And um, I got a call from the governor's office asking me to be Secretary of State. So once again, my house in Joshi's on hold. <laughs> I hope to go there this year and check out the spot. But, um, but it, it, it was one of these challenges once again that I thought, you know, it'll be a good challenge. And, and I don't mind giving the service, but, uh, but I, I kept getting backed into the political world because I was in the political world fighting for things, but never seeing myself as a politician, uh, always fighting for what folks needed. And I wasn't unafraid to do so, you know, because, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of people could do to me at that point. Um, but that's how I got into politics, really, because, because I kept believing that you're supposed to say something, that if something's going wrong, you have a responsibility to try to correct it if you can. And to not do that would, would really drive me crazy to have things happen. And I know that I could make it better, and I didn't. So I'm curious about that transition, that move from being an advocate who's pushing elected officials to then being an elected official. <laughs> what did you notice about the difference between what it felt like to be an advocate and then to be a politician? You know, I'm in a, I'm, I'm in a strange place, I think, in my life where I'm always an advocate. Uh, I don't believe in politicians that much. 
I remember when I was in middle school, I tell people there was this, um, there was this teacher who's talking about civic stuff. And uh, he said there are two kinds of, you know, elected officials. There's a politician and then there's a statesman. And they told us the difference. And I resolved at that point, I'll never be a politician. Because a politician will do whatever's necessary that the wind is blowing to maintain their position and keep themselves being elected. I, I won't do that. I won't do that. And in fact, people used to call me and say, well, how are you doing? Or do you like being a politician? Do you like being an elected official? And I always tell people, um, they say, do you just love it? And I said, I will never love it. Because when you love something, you will do anything to keep it. And they go, oh. I said, so, and I won't do anything to remain elected. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do it well. I'm going to represent the people. But I'm always going to speak out. I'm not going to be afraid. And I'm not going to betray the trust. And we can see now that people will do anything to stay in office. And I won't do that. Hmm. So I imagine that in your work, especially having strong stances, you frequently find yourself running into people who don't agree with what you want to see happen. What has your career taught you about how to work with people who are not on the same page as you? Well, you know, being an educator, you always believe that education and information is the answer to people who have an honest heart. If they don't have an honest heart, there's not a whole lot you can do with them too much. But people who have an honest heart, you can deal with them. And one of the things I learned, not so much in being a politician, but, but at the university, because the university is a very political place. You know, for those who don't think it's political, you'll be, in, you'll, you'll be upset because it is very political. Who gets this? Who gets that? Who's in charge? All those things are very, very political at universities. Um, and so I learned a lot being at the university because I was, for, for, keep in mind, for 30 of the years that I was there, I was fighting to establish this department. Okay, and we established it after the first year, but then you have to keep doing things to to justify this and to justify that and to make sure you've got the right people and all these kinds of things. And so I learned at the university how to negotiate. I learned how to listen carefully at the university and make sure that I could answer all the questions that were going to be asked. I also watched the inconsistency of the university. I was on the academic senate. I served on every committee that the university had, whether it's at the university, at the main level, or whether it's at dean's level, or whatever it was, I served on every committee, which means I saw firsthand the wishy-washy attitude of people, okay? I saw people tell me today that the sky is blue, and then tomorrow tell me, well, it really is red. You were just standing in the wrong spot when you looked. I have, I have seen it all. And the good thing is that it equipped me to deal with it all and to learn how to listen to what people say and see what they do. So coming into the, the legislature, uh, even at the school board, um, I learned very quickly how to get five votes. Even though somebody says, you only have to count to three. You get three and you, you got the deal done. Well, I've knew from being in the Senate and working with people that if you, if you only, if you're five of you and you only count to three and you get three of them, you got two people who have the potential to constantly stand around and complain and the least little thing go wrong, throw rocks. If I could get you to join me in this five, then you will not only be a supporter, but you will also help to correct the errors that might exist in a program. And so I always work to get five. I would, I would ask a person, well, why won't you vote for this? I remember asking one guy, why won't you vote for this? He says, well, I'm not going to vote for it because you don't have a, a system that comes back and assesses this program in a year to make sure it's doing well. I said, well, we'll add that. That's not a big deal. 
we'll add it. And we added it and he voted with it. Because I knew if I had all five of them voting with this thing, they were then going to be committed to it and supportive of it. And so I wasn't going to do the political thing, just get three votes. I wanted five votes, okay, on, on every program we had. And if, if you couldn't vote with me, then I'd ask you to tell me why. And sometimes you couldn't because you had this community that was different and was refusing to participate. And they said, but understand, I'm not going to fight against you. I'm not going to speak against you. I just personally can't vote for it. But I know you got four votes. So I said, okay, fine. I'll let that person go by. But I didn't want to have... Issues that I could resolve on the table. So I learned very quickly that it's extremely important to get the consensus, if you can, of everybody in the room. To put them on record in terms of what they believe in and to get their vote. And so I generally would, would talk to everybody in a meeting. I learned very quickly how to get, how to negotiate. When some of the most difficult bills I did, one of them was the one using lethal force to make sure that, uh, that police officers did not use force unless it was absolutely necessary. And not because they found it convenient, but because it was necessary to save their life or somebody else's life. It sounds like a simple concept, but it was, it was very complicated. I had, I had worked my, my, my members of the assembly so much in terms of over the years that when that bill came up, those who couldn't vote with me gave me, told me exactly why, because of their community, but they say, I'm going to abstain. I'm not going to vote against it. And, and what happened was when, when I, people were trying to denigrate me and say, well, listen, you know, she, she refuses to talk to people. She's arrogant. She won't do this, won't do that. It was interesting that my colleagues in the assembly would say, that is not her. You need to go back and talk to her again. Cause she told us she called your office and you refused to meet with her. They believed me over the other, over the lobbyist. And so I realized at that point that, that you learn to work with people when you, and you be honest with them. Uh, you can basically, um, uh, you can build on their trust if you, if you get their trust. And I have lots of, lots of friends who are on the other side of the aisle who voted with me on many major bills because I told them the truth. And they knew that if I said that, that that's exactly what I was going to do and I wasn't going to betray it by doing something else later on. So you, 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 you become this kind of person that's able to do these things because you, you have the trust of the, of the people, you have the honesty of the individuals, and you work hard to make sure that your reputation as an elected official is unblemished. So one of the things that you've worked on recently is passing the first in the nation reparations bill. It's a bill that's looking at what it would look like in California to create reparations for black Californians who can trace their ancestry to people who were enslaved. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what reparations are and why you think California needs them. Well, California and, and the nation does reparations all the time. And, you know, we don't, we don't recognize it, but we do it, uh, and we actually do it in the form of reparations. Um, we pay, we help give folks who we believe have been harmed uh, by us. Uh, we try to repay them. We try to make sure that what they're doing is, is recognized and, and that, that there's some compensation and there's some, say, there's some statement that I'm sorry and that wrong has been done. It's, and you try to repair the damage. That's what reparations does. You know, this bill of reparations, uh, you know, started in, at the end of slavery with the 40 acres and a mule, that no one ever compensated African Americans for their free labor for hundreds of years. There was never any effort to try to give back to them what they had lost. And in fact, at the 40 acres and a mule, uh, when the war ended and that was supposed to have some land and some way for these folks to rebuild their lives because they had been enslaved, uh, they took the money from the 40 acres and mule and gave it to the slaveholders. 
and say, we're going to give you this because you lost your slaves, so forth. And, and so this is to compensate you with some money and some land so that, you know, to pay for your, you owning slaves, to pay for you owning them, uh, not, not thinking of the tremendous amount of the work that you'd already gotten from them free. So anyway, so, you know, this, this whole issue of reparations, where we, we've done it with the Jewish community, we've done it with other groups where people have been compensated for, um, for the, with the Asian community, uh, for having, have their property taken during World War II. We're, we're accustomed to doing, we're accustomed to doing reparations. But no one has ever really felt that they had to do reparations for African Americans. And what happened was, for the last 40 years, Congress has been putting forth a reparations bill and could not get it passed. Um, the last one they did, we did a, a resolution at the assembly uh, at the state level saying we support this. But what good does that do? It's not going to get out. So after doing a number of things, I decided that California should do reparations. So I authored a bill and it got passed out of the assembly and signed by the governor the same year. Since then, a task force has been formed to basically ask the question, what damage was done? What, was, what policies in California uh, had a devastating effect upon those who came here uh, who had been. And did California have slaves? We did. Did California participate in slavery? Yes. Is there any economics that we see in terms of uh, redlining, in terms of insurance policies? All those things help to build California on, on the back of, of African-Americans and those who had been enslaved in, this, in the state. So, uh, so we, did, we formed the task force. And it's the first one in the nation to actually be formed by and, and supported by the governor. Uh, they're having hearings uh, right now. I guess the first report will be out at the end of June uh, to have California look at its policies towards African-Americans over the over the uh, since its inception as a state over 170, 180 years and ask the question, you know, what was our level of participation? What harm did we produce and how do we then get involved to change that harm? How do we change the direction of the harm that has been done? Uh, and so, um, so we're looking forward to it. People across the nation, of course, are talking about the bill. Some cities have formed reparations task force in their cities. Uh, San Diego has a, a, a reparations task force in their foundation because they realize that they need to help people own homes because homes are their wealth. And African-Americans are almost at a minus zero in terms of wealth in this nation. Um, so, you know, it, so I just thought, well, if California can do everything else, it can do reparations. And thus far, we've had some great hearings. I hope some of you take advantage of some of the hearings, as well as go and look at, at some of the things on our archives, some of the filmed t hearings that are there, as well as some of the documents that they're generating. Yeah. So we've got just a few minutes left, so I'm going to ask one more question. But for people in the audience, if you guys have questions you'd like to ask Secretary Weber, you can go ahead and start writing those questions down, getting them ready, and lining up at the mics. Um, but as you all do that, I'm going to ask this final question. Mm -hmm which is that the reparations proposal, um, which is supposed to come out at the end of June, which would detail sort of how the state could repair the harm to black communities who have this connection to enslavement, um, will come out in June, as I said, but will have to be voted on by lawmakers. And voting for lawmakers who align with our beliefs is one of the main ways we can ensure that our laws reflect our values. For people who can't quite vote yet, what are ways to still be involved in making sure your community and your elected officials are representing your values and fighting for change when they don't? Well, there are a couple of things we're trying to get young people to do. One, we hope all of you are pre-registered to vote so when you turn 18, you're ready. If you haven't pre-registered, we need to do that for you. My staff, we go to a lot of high schools to make sure students understand that. Uh, some of you will work on the polls. Many of you will have parents who listen to you 
who, who may not pay attention to all the things that happen around them because they're so busy, but they'll, but they'll pay attention to you because you've taken an interest in a piece of, of, of legislation or an idea that needs to be heard. I encourage you to really be extremely informed because, as you probably know, there's so much information out there now that is, uh, some of it is misinformation, misdirections, a little bit of it is good, but it's extremely important that you pay attention and that you really listen to various ideas, read the material, attend things, interesting, most things now online. So just being able to go online and, 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 and learn about reparations and learn about police use of force or whatever it may be is extremely important. Keep in mind also that when things happen and there's a political engagement, there's a political rally, people don't know who voted and who didn't vote. They just know there's a large number standing outside my door. <laughs> and I tell students all the time, they have no idea how old you are, how young you are, whatever it may be. But if there's a rally occurring that you believe in and you have permission to attend, you should you should lend your body because that's what is you're doing. You're, you're, people, politicians actually look out the door and the window and see how many people are there. They actually pay attention to who shows up at the Capitol and make a statement. And they don't say, oh, voter, no voter, voter, no voter. Because if you take that kind of time, they believe that if you had the right to vote, you would do it. If you have the potential to vote, you will do it. Because why? Because that's the high, one of the highest levels of engagement. Not just only voting, but also living out or working on issues that are extremely important. You know, have young, work with your elected official. You have elected officials in the city that are great. Work with them. You know, meet with them. Let them know that you have a concern. Volunteer to be an intern in their office. Those kinds of things are extremely important. And it says that you are willing to learn and to understand what's going on. So I really... Uh, encourage you to be involved. You can be involved at any level. You can phone bank. You know, you can call people to ask them to vote for individuals. Uh, you can meet with your elected official. And, and if I we had at the Capitol the other week, I don't know how many, a couple of uh, six or seven hundred um, K through 12, K, really K through seven kids who are, who are advocating for resources for their, and they all got a chance to testify. So they ended up with hours of testimony because these young people had issues and they wanted the state to respond to it. Don't ever believe that you're insignificant because when you do, you become insignificant. Hmm. All right. If we can give it a hand to Secretary Weber. And if you have questions, feel free to hop up to the mic right there. It's ready for you. We got a brave first questioner. Hi, um, my name is Jeremy. Um, so you spoke uh, briefly about like you have a distrust and a dislike of politicians. No, I didn't say I have that. Oh, I'm, I meant, I'm not, I, <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry. Um, and in my own experience, um, I just don't. I don't like. Like you mentioned the difference between a politician and a statesman, mm -hmm. and I agree wholeheartedly with, with that. Um, so do you believe there's a disconnect uh, between officials and, you know, younger people like such as myself and my classmates here? And if you do, then why is that? And is there something that can be done to help make that better? Sure. Um, you know, I, I strongly recommend, um, because this is your life and your fate, uh, that you make yourself visible and make yourself heard. Uh, most politicians and statespersons will listen to you. I'm amazed when I go into different elected officials' offices that there are people there, young people, who want to work, who want to be involved. 
Um, I've had I don't know how many young people in my office in in in, uh, in Sacramento when I was in the assembly. And I have some in my office now as secretary of state who wanted to volunteer. And eventually they become paid interns or whatever it may be. But they wanted to be involved. And when they got involved, we involved them in everything. Legislation, uh, going to committee hearings, helping us at the, the last night of, elect, uh, of the legislature, which is always chaos and crazy. But young people like to come and be a part of that. I don't know an elected official who wouldn't welcome you into that environment uh, because they want you to learn. Uh, they want you to be involved. And, you know, even if you're a politician and not a statesman, it looks good to have young people with you, you know, when you're going to various places, because that says that you're talking to me, you're telling me things. And and my staff is, you know, some of them, I, I, Denise was once an intern in my office when she was a student. Now she's big time in Sacramento running programs and things for me and has been with me for a number of years. I mean, I've had lots of students who... um who are in my office all the time. I was at the White House Fellows lecturing two weeks ago because one of the, one of the felt, one of the volunteers in my office is now a White House Fellow and insisted that I come to the White House to basically talk to the fellows. Um, so you, you make yourself heard. I don't think they, I think what happens is that young people are so busy doing their thing, which is okay at times, um, that they don't, they don't realize the fact that they have the opportunity to participate. The mayor of San Diego, uh, Todd Gloria, started off as a volunteer in Susan Davis's office. And he, it was, he was 16 years old, and he liked it. And so she allowed him to come and work on everything she had, and he went to UCSD and got politically involved. But people are happy to see people who are involved, who are not only just want to be there, but who are willing to put their time and energy into it because it's a lot of work. So don't think that they don't want to hear you, whether they're the politician or the state's person or whatever. They want you there. And when you go in the Capitol, if you go to Capitol here, if you go to Capitol in D.C., you will see an enormous number of young people. You know, I went to I met with Pelosi a couple of years ago and there were so many young people running around her office. It was unbelievable. You know, and they and now one of my friend's daughters, who was one of those young folks running around, is now in Germany negotiating all kinds of things uh, on behalf of the, of the United States. So it's really uh, it's yours for the taking. Don't ever believe that you're insignificant. It's yours for the taking. You just have to search yourself to do that. The secretary of state's office has an, uh, I think we have probably 100 interns or something that work at the secretary of state's office. And they're all paid interns. And some of them work with us their whole undergraduate career in college. Um, we're always happy to have them, you know, because you bring new ideas and good energy, good energy into an office. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned towards the end about how voting and like how you should always use their, vo uh, their voice for good if they have... What do you think is the best way to garner attention? Because I feel like a lot of youth feel like they go unheard if, or they believe that if they, they feel nervous to speak out because they feel like their voice may go unheard. And what do you think? What do you say to that? Well, you know, you should never believe that your voice goes unheard, especially if you're using it. OK, if you don't use it, yeah, it has gone unheard because you've never said anything. Uh, but it is extremely important that you realize that, you know, <sighs> I can't emphasize enough the importance of, of, of the power that you have to change the world. And this is an opportune time. I mean, this is an, and I say that not because of the outside environment. It's because of where you are in your life. You don't have a house. You don't have kids. You don't have a mortgage. You don't have, uh, you don't have any of these things. I was told when I was a teenager, this is your time to be 
speaking out, thinking about things, getting engaged. Why? Because you don't have all these burdens on you. You know, you don't have to worry about, well, if I say something wrong, uh, I'll lose my job and then I can't pay my mortgage and my wife will leave me. I mean, you don't have any of that stuff. None of that stuff you shouldn't have at this point, <laughs> you know. So you should be unafraid to to lift your voice, to get the information, to ask questions. And um, and even if you don't know the outcome of all of that, it is important to do it because the first time you do it is scary. But like anything else, the more you do it, the more people respect you. And the more you can do it, the more you can do it even more often because you're no longer afraid. Um, you're going to be you're not going to be com- abused and confronted by individuals. If you do, the people will look down on them more than on you. Your elected officials are lucky and happy to hear your voice. Most folks don't have time, but if you want to be engaged, get engaged. It's real simple. Call their office, call their campaign office. Uh, Once you get kind of hooked into it, you'll realize how easy it is and you'll always want to be engaged. You'll always want to be engaged. You realize how important your role is in making things happen. You know, when you have a whole lot of students in a lawn at the Capitol, as I've sometimes had, and we're talking about critical issues, the, the press reports, you know, there was a thousand people on the lawn talking about reparations or talking about uh, police force or whatever it may be. Uh, there's hallways a block with young people sitting and waiting for somebody to show up. I mean, that's extremely important. And, 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 and so don't underestimate your power. You have tremendous power. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just had a question about uh, homelessness, and it wasn't really talked about in this chat, but uh, California already has plans to reduce, uh, or they promised to reduce the amount of visible homeless, homelessness by about 2% in the years 2020 to 2024. Do you or any of the other elected officials have any plans to further this promise after the year uh, 2024? Well, my understanding is, is that the governor's promise that you're talking about? Uh, Every city has a different set of things. I'm not sure whether L- or San Francisco or I, w- I was with the mayor of L.A. yesterday and she has a, a, a whole homeless project program that she's trying to do. And I know the president is doing it. Um, you know, to reduce the homeless population, it has to have the commitment, not of just the homeless, but the people who are housed, you know, and that, and I think that is becoming the reality for us. And I think they will, I think, because what's happening is homelessness is everywhere and it's no longer relegated to certain blocks and certain streets. It's in every community that's there. And California particularly has a tremendous number of homeless folks in every city. And people are very committed to trying to figure it out to be helped to do that has to be the people of California. Because when you start talking about building houses or small houses or whatever you're going to do, you're going to build them not only in your neighborhood, but in other people's neighborhoods as well, in order because it's just that serious a problem. Um, I'm optimistic that they will begin to do that because it has become so great uh, that it's the number one issue on almost every mayor's list. And um, and Los Angeles has a huge number. And that mayor is is from day one going in and out of homeless camps and doing things and creating and finding housing for people. But it's going to require the commitment of California. You know, when I was in um, Australia um, a couple of years ago and I was walking, we were there dealing with issues of water and what have you and drought. Um, I was in Sydney and, and I didn't see a lot of homeless folks. I didn't see anybody on the street. I didn't see any of that. And I asked the woman who was with us, she was a part of the parliament and some others, and she's, I said, 
where's your homeless population? And she said, we once had a homeless population. She said, but we decided, we, the people of Australia, decided that homelessness was an affront to our humanity. She said, every time I saw a homeless person, I felt less of a person myself. She said, and we decided that we were going to eliminate homelessness so that every project of any construction in, in Sydney had some small houses and homeless places for people to live and resources and services to help them stay housed. When we decide that we're tired of the homeless population, tired of folks not having what they need, basic thing like being in a house or shelter, we'll solve the problem. But we all have to decide that this is an affront to our humanity. Thank you. Mm -hmm. May I first thank the Honorable uh, Ms. Weber for coming here. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. Oh, I agree with your father on education and voting, but um, one of our honorable members of our class has already addressed the problem of voting, mm -hmm. so I would like to ask a question regarding to education. So um, I would like to start with a quote. So the sweet and the most inoffensive path of life is um, led through science and learning, and whoever removes the obstructions thereof um, ought so far to be esteemed as the benefactor of mankind by um, David Hume, 1748, in, his, in the excerpt of um, Education Theory. And um, so I have accentuated the importance of education and what is the obst obstruction setting our way to education. So my thought to that is um, the funding, um, as Ms. Suam, our teacher, has observed to me numerous amount of times that um, she wished to renovate her classroom, her curriculum, and to devise new programs and activities for the, the class. But alas, she lacked funding. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we address this problem? And will you be the benefactor of mankind? <laughs> <laughs> Big question. <laughs> good question, good question. Um, you know, I, I find I, 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 I've spent, I don't know, how many years in the legislature fighting for a quality education for every kid in California. And I'm still doing that on various levels. It is sad to me that California is, is, is a powerhouse for education. It is a powerhouse in its community colleges, in its Cal State University, at its UCs, and at the private institutions in California. There is no rival to California's prowess in this area. You know, we, 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 we have that ability. We are, however, failing in K-12. And that to me is tragic because how could you have such a huge educational, post-secondary educational system and not have a better delivery of education at the K-12 level? It is shameful. It is shameful. Um, I fought many battles dealing with the issue of performance, accountability, uh, quality education for every kid in California. The obstacle lies in the adults. It lies in the adults. I can remember many meetings in the education committee when I said, I am tired of talking about old people. I want to talk about kids. I'm going to talk about what we need to give them. You see, I can't 
you know, and I, when I was on school board, I used to say, I'm not an, and I'm not an employment agency. I employ a lot of people, but my but my real purpose is quality education. That's what I am as a school board member. So I can talk about adult things like teachers don't like to do this and teachers don't want to be here and don't want to be there. But the objective has to be the student, not the teacher. Teachers are powerful and important. And they have to be and they have to recognize their power to give to kids the knowledge that they need. We can give all the money and we have done that in California. They just even in the crisis, we've been increasing the budget by several billions of dollars. The question is, where is the money going? Is it going in the classroom? Is it is it being driven to us to help teachers become more effective and efficient in the delivery of information to kids? Probably not from what I've seen. And so we have somehow another lost sight of our real goal and objective, which is to educate our kids. And we should evaluate the effectiveness of our schools and our system based on that. And we don't. And so I've been in a numerous battles, probably if you look at some of the videos from the legislature, um, demanding a quality education for our, every kid. Because I know that it is the key to lift kids out of poverty. I'm a benefactor of that. You know, being raised in the Pueblos and the projects of Los Angeles. We had amazing teachers in the projects who didn't, who, who demanded more of me than anybody else, even though my parents could not have imagined giving me the quality education I had. But we've created the system to do that. But we have not developed the commitment on our own part and held ourselves as educators, as teachers, as administrators. We have not held ourselves accountable for the outcomes, not just to get kids in a room and make sure that they're all here today. But the question is, are we actually saying to ourselves, that if these kids are not doing certain things, that we have failed them and we have failed ourselves. Instead of creating these alternative things that we evaluate ourselves by. And so I'm a real advocate for quality education. Um, I fought, you can't even name the battles that I fought. And I'm still on a whole bunch of boards and commissions, even though I'm no longer in the legislature. Because the key to California has always been an education. And it had a wonderful K-12. And now it has been gobbled up by other kinds of things that really have, when you think about it, have very little relevance to kids and learning. And we can educate any kid we choose to. And the fact that we have all these educational institutions, all these huge universities with, you know, the research is, un, un, is unbelievable. And we fail to do it ourselves. It's tragic. I was in New York. I was invited to a hearing on um, school um, attendance and, and expense, suspensions and expulsions. And, uh, and I went to this meeting to hear the research because in, in, in California we have a huge issue with suspensions and expulsions and suspending kindergartners and all these kinds of folks, just a horrible situation. And so I go to New York for this special hearing I was invited to be a part of to hear the researchers. And I was appalled when I walked into the room that day because the experts were from California. The experts on this issue were in the State Department of Education. I was appalled to see these people that I see every day telling the nation how to deal with suspensions and expulsions while we have so many suspensions and expulsions of our cell own. How could you people be experts other than how to have it 
but not how to get rid of it. And so I was appalled, but much of it was the politics. Who's in charge? Who gets paid? Who does this? Who does that? Do, 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 you know, if we, te- if teachers suspending kids and, and then they do these other kind of informal suspensions so that the kid is not in school, but it's not recorded. I mean, just a whole lot of game playing around the fact that we have not adequately educated our kids. Hmm. And California has the capacity and the ability to do so, but it chooses not to. And so just giving money is one thing. Expanding the base is one thing, but changing the paradigm of teaching and, and, and teachers and engagement of young people and all that kind of stuff is extremely important. And those teachers who try to do it and do it well are rewarded by their students appreciating them. But we have to have that for every teacher and every student, period. And our yeah, standard yeah. has to be clear. Quality education. Mm-hmm. Well said. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. I think, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our time. I'm sorry for everybody who's still in line. Thank you, guys. Thank you so very much for having me here. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.